Chow, why don't you include some of the more fancy dishes in the next edition of your cookbook? Stewed snakes, monkey's brain, honeyed mice, shark's fin in silver netting. Dishes one sometimes hears about but rarely has the opportunity to taste. My answer is, as many users of this book will confirm, that my purpose in writing such a book was in the first place to instruct and not to impress. In other words, nothing fancy, but everything folksy. Things for folks like you and me. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hey, Kim, how are you? I'm doing really well. We're suffering, and I use that term lightly, but sincerely, we're suffering a little bit of a heat wave here in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. It's uh, supposed to go up to 91 degrees today, which is holy cow for us, as you remember, a little warm. Yes. But the, the, I mean, the hidden secret of the Pacific Northwest is that our spring and summer is just so beautiful. We're really a big community about being outside and enjoying the lakes and the mountains and the beautiful land we have here. So this is just all the more incentive to get outside, but also to cook outside. And that's one of the fun things that we have coming up, of course, seasonally, is that idea of what do you eat when it's hot? And that, right. I love that. How are you doing? Yeah. Good, good. Spring has sprung hard here as well. So we're up in the 80s, which is really hot here too. And one of the things after our long Montana winters is the same. Everybody wants to be outside. So I will give the little disclaimer that we are across from a park, a beautiful park, and people's lawnmowers come out right about now as well. So (laughs) if you hear the lawnmowers, sorry, not sorry, because we are enjoying the green. Yes, very much so. Me too. We've got the emerald green going on right now that the Emerald City is known for. And so I'm just loving it up here. Yeah, we've been working on the tiny house. We're getting closer and closer yesterday. I installed the newly painted doors on the kitchen cabinets, which was super exciting. The new gas range has been installed. I cannot wait to start cooking in this kitchen. And speaking of cooking, I am so excited to introduce our As We Eat family to our next cookbook, which is How to Cook and Eat in Chinese. But before we dive into the book, I think it's important to set both the social and political stage for the time that this cookbook was written and published. During this time, the U.S. had really fostered a pretty hostile environment for Chinese immigrants in the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was passed in 1882 and wasn't repealed until 1943. The act was passed to quell the endangerment of the good order of certain localities. Now, the tensions that led to the concern over the good order included economic and 
moral concerns, as well as cultural misunderstandings. Now, many Chinese immigrants had come here to flee revolution. They had come here to work in the mines, to build railroads. And a lot of them were supporting families that were back in China, as well as here in the States. What that meant is that they were really willing to work for any type of wage. And this isn't a new concern. We've had this conversation within the photography industry, within the writing industry. When you have groups of people that insert themselves into any type of industry and offer products and services for rates that are unfair and impractical, it affects the lives of others. Now, I'm not saying that everybody should charge exorbitant prices, but you do have to have fair wages to live. Mm -hmm. And I'm not taking sides at all. What I'm saying is that this has a huge impact on social and economical environments today, as well as when this cookbook was written. Additionally, as groups tend to do, the Chinese created communities and they didn't assimilate and integrate. And as other groups tend to do, they saw the cultures and traditions as abnormal and in many cases immoral. So you have this huge amount of friction between workers who feel like they're not being compensated fairly because of an ethnic group that's creating an economic environment that only benefits them. That's what they see. And as humans do, you start to find all of the differences in your adversaries and call them immoral, dangerous and detrimental. And you make a lot of noise about it. So much noise that your government has to act and act they did in the form of the Chinese Exclusion Act. So yep. now you have a law that validates all the feelings. And as we know, laws are always right. <laughs> yeah, always based on logic and fairness. Heavy sarcasm, yes. folks. Yeah, heavy sarcasm. Here. Very heavy sarcasm here. Yeah. And the exclusion was fortified further with the Scott Act and the Gary Act, which actually absorbed the Chinese Exclusion Act. But what's really interesting is that while the tensions rose against the Chinese as a group that was undermining wages and morality, again, please note the air quotes, respect for their work ethic and professionalism, their foods and their restaurants was really high. Mm -hmm. So there was this taste and interest in Chinese food at the same time of not wanting them to be here. Mm -hmm. We are a weird bunch, we humans. So an embracing of the tangible qualities of a culture without necessarily embracing the whole bit of the culture as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. As I mentioned, the Gary Act absorbed the Chinese Exclusion Act and the Scott Act, and they were in place up until 1943 when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. All of a sudden, China became an ally for World War II. So you have to repeal this act, right? You can't be an ally and say, we don't want you. So it was repealed in 1943. Now there's another conflict that influenced the creation of this cookbook, and it is the Boxer Rebellion. Mm. And the Boxer Rebellion is essentially a peasant uprising in China that was incited by colonialism, foreign land grabs, Christian crusades, and attacks against these foreign colonists, land grabbers, and crusaders, as well as Chinese Christians, necessitated the involvement of course, of the colonialists, the land grabbers, and the crusaders, because it wouldn't be good for business. And as recompense for saving the Qing dynasty from this uprising, the eight allies, 
and you guys can look up the eight alleys who they were. I'm not going to name names right now, <laughs> but they required indemnities to be paid by the Qing dynasty and they paid them. I will say that the United States was one of the allies. So in 1908, Congress passed a bill to return, shockingly, $17 million in surplus <laughs> that the Qing dynasty had paid. And they decided that they're going to give this money back to China. Oh, dear. This was met with a lot of opposition. So rather than risking a rebellion here... The Roosevelt administration decided to institute a scholarship program that would allow Chinese students to earn degrees in the U.S. Now, this was not entirely altruistic. The administration felt that this was a great opportunity for an American-directed reform in China. Right? You educate these students in American universities. You introduce American ideals and philosophies. I do have to say that there was a big group of younger Chinese uh, citizens who were starting to embrace Western ideals. Oh, hugely. I should say, I shouldn't be so sarcastic because it did offer a lot of opportunities to a lot of Chinese students. And if I can, there's a huge actual kind of, it's not a shadow movement, but it, it was a less spoken, less kind of realized thing, which was a policy, as it were, of inviting, engaging and attracting yes, heavy intellectual talent from around the world to the United States. Mm -hmm. We benefited from that hugely as we led mm -hmm. up into World War One and World War Two. A lot of our science and the scientists behind the science of atomic science, energy, etc., actually is not homegrown talent. It's people who immigrated to the United States who were right. recruited, drawn, attracted. So there was a massive benefit to us to have Chinese students right. come be educated and, and ultimately to stay in the U.S., yeah, exactly. The reason that this program, the Boxer Indemnity Scholarship Program, is important to this cookbook is that a young man by the name of Yuan Ren Chow was invited to participate and was educated both at Harvard and Cornell. Okay, so we've set the stage, but I would be remiss to say that the author, Mrs. Chow, Bu Wei Yang Chow, was very unconventional in that she was a doctor to the cookbook. How to Cook and Eat in Chinese by Wu Wei Yang Chao was translated by Rulan Chao and edited by Yuan Ren Chao. Now, I suspect that if you talk to any cookbook author, they will tell you that the book was touched by a lot of people, <laughs> that it wasn't a singular effort by themselves. And this cookbook, How to Cook and Eat in Chinese, is a Fabulous example of that. Now, the original manuscript was written in Chinese by Bu Wei, who, if you read the author profile in the As We Eat journal, you would have learned was, as I mentioned, a doctor. She was one of the first doctors to practice Western medicine in China. She and a colleague opened up an OBGYN hospital, and she advocated for birth control. What a woman. At yeah. this time, too. What a woman. Right. Right. You really need to go read the article in the journal because it goes way more in depth. <laughs> it's there's so much fun facts about Bu Wei. Now, Bu Wei's daughter, Rulan, as I mentioned, translated it into English. And then her linguist husband, who came here on the Boxer Indemnity Scholarship, edited and he added his own spin. <laughs> 
<laughs> and there are some amazing things that he, both of them, Rulan and Ewan Wren added to the book. I want to read the author's note because <laughs> it is, it just speaks to the relationship of the three of them. And if you don't understand the Chinese culture and how they actually poke fun at each other, you might think that they don't like each other, but that's not the case. Buwei opens up the book with this author's note. I am ashamed to have written this book. First, because I am a doctor and not to be practicing instead of cooking. Secondly, because I didn't write the book. The way I didn't was like this. You know I speak little English and write less. So I cooked my dishes in Chinese. My daughter Rulan put my Chinese into English. And my husband, finding the English dull, put much of it back into Chinese again. And she ends the author's note by saying, It is safe for me to claim that all the credit for the good points of the book is mine. All of the blame for the bad points is Rulan's. Next, I must blame my husband for all of the negative contributions he has made toward the making of this book. I was in stitches <laughs> when I read that. I was laughing because I, this is, again, this reminds me so much of what we loved about Edna Lewis, what we loved about Julia Child, what, and what we loved about all the contributors in the Women's Suffrage Cookbook. These are people. This right. is not some automaton in a kitchen chopping. This book reflects the people that made it. And in that way, you feel like you're in the kitchen watching this little banter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it adds then to your experience going through the book. We don't have to always be so pristine in our writing or our communication. Right. There's a lot of flavor but in the bickering and the gentle bickering. And it was, I, yeah, I loved that when I read that. It just made me love her all the more. And so I'm, I feel ready. I feel appetite. I feel like I've had my amuse-bouche. I'm amused. Right. And I'm ready. I'm ready to cook. Yeah. Right. I love yeah. that too. I did too. I just love that so much. When we chose the cookbooks for this season's podcast, we did so with a specific topic in mind for each of the cookbooks. And the topic for this cookbook was breaking stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And although, like we said, Mrs. Chow pokes fun at the way the cookbook came to be, I think that the creation speaks to how important to all of the Chows that it was to introduce their traditions and philosophies on food as accurately and accessible as possible. Mm -hmm. And I think that you see that in this author's note. It was important for Rulan to bring it into English so that the English-speaking people could learn how to cook and eat in Chinese. It was important for Ruan Ren to bring his linguistic hmm? spin to it so that people could understand a lot of the colloquialisms that, you know, I mean, so many languages, one word, it's not just one little word that can replace it. It right. has an entire experience, an entire meaning. So I think that Mr. Chow was really good about trying to infuse that. And speaking of Mr. Chow, a great example of this is the word stir fry. There's no word in the English language that defined this type of cooking. Mm -hmm. So when Mr. Chow got his hands on the cookbook, <laughs> he invented a word that he knew would invoke this style of cooking. And being a linguist, he went a little bit further and he defined it by saying, roughly speaking, stir frying may be defined as a big fire, shallow fat, continual stirring, quick frying of cut up material with wet seasoning. And you're like, yeah, that's exactly what stir frying is. That's exactly what it is. 
I never knew that. I never knew that this is actually the origin of stir fry mm-hmm. because it does. Of course, I've cooked in a stir fry method many times in my life. I've obviously eaten stir fried foods and absolutely 100% that description is absolutely what I would think of immediately before I hear the definition. Yeah. Yeah. In the last cookbook that we cracked open, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, we talked about how the formatting of the recipes was a direct result of the purpose of the book, Mm -hmm. namely to teach and instruct not only how to make French dishes, but kitchen techniques that could be employed past making French food. Mm -hmm. Now, the way that Mrs. Chow structures this cookbook is brilliant in the demonstration of her hope to demystify both Chinese food and its people. Even the title speaks to this purpose, how to cook and eat in Chinese. And this isn't a translation error. It is the purpose of the book, how to cook in the Chinese fashion and how to eat in the Chinese fashion. And the section that I really think does a great job of defining or is a great example of this is the soup section. In the introduction to the soup chapter, Mrs. Chow says, By this time, you'll expect me to say that in China, a soup is not a soup, but something quite different. (laughs) Well, soups will be soups, but they are used very differently. And then she goes on to explain how differently they're used at each meal. She explains what light soups are, what heavy soups are. She even explains what it means when someone says, drop in. I have some soup tonight. How often do we invite people in some kind of a colloquialism or jargon that I'm sure that a lot of people are like, what did they just say? (laughs) But she explains, this is what it means. This is what you can expect. If someone says to you, drop in, I have some soup tonight. You know exactly what you're going to get. Yeah. She begins the cookbook with conventions and hints section. It includes what each of the recipe numbers mean because she has a very definitive way that she numbers each of the recipes in the book, what each of the sub numbers mean. She shows you, (laughs) I love this too. She talks about the fact that she speaks, she says Chinese words in general descriptions are given in the Wade system, which her husband opposes. (laughs) And she says that she speaks Mandarin in an, and way, and I probably pronounced that wrong accent, and Cantonese with a Mandarin accent. If you want to speak Chinese with an American accent, learn the following approximations. So she gives you a wow. list of letters and how each of them is pronounced within the Chinese language. She really wants to introduce you mm. into these foods. She wants you to be able to at least attempt to pronounce these words. She talks about what to cook first and what to eat first, which again, I think is brilliant, especially given the name of the cookbook, How to Cook and Eat. These methods of cooking are the ones you should learn first. These flavors are the ones that you should taste first. I really admired that she gave a lot of thought to to these things, to these elements, to how to eat in Chinese. Mm-hmm. That, to me, I mean, the recipes are beautiful, and I'm really excited to cook from this cookbook. But at the same time, I I really respect that she respects us enough to help us. From my perspective here is I'm an American eater. You know, I grew mm-hmm. up, obviously, American palate, even though my parents are immigrants. But at the same time, there is a process and a, a style of eating Asian foods that's different from eating Western foods. I mean, Mm -hmm. just chopsticks alone. And it's not even like you have one kind of chopstick. There's actually like five different kinds. My point being, 
all of us may have had some experience of going into an eating situation beyond what we think of the standard fork and knife. Mm -hmm. And that even took me back to when we were talking about table manners and how we actually as human beings also had to learn how to eat with things other than our hands. Yes. Trenchers and spoons and forks and knives. We'll put a link to that in the show notes in case you've forgotten which episode that was. But I appreciated that she had a focus and attention to etiquette. Not only was she graciously inviting us into her home to like effectively eat at her table as we would, but she was helping us feel comfortable with that experience. And that goes a long way because we love the flavors that we love. But how often have you gone into a situation where you feel so flummoxed and anxious right. about how to engage with an experience that you actually maybe don't really enjoy the food at all? She's setting the whole table for us, quite literally. And I really, I loved that. I really appreciated I that. Yeah. And beyond that, she's explaining why, what the philosophy is around each of these things. Now you begin to understand. You don't see the differences as these big, huge differences. You just see them as another way to experience something. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that was really different about this cookbook that I really love are the footnotes that were added by both Mr. Chow and Rulan. And there's these like little asides. There's some little under the breath comments, (laughs) comments that help you become part of the experience. Yeah. Rulan writes this footnote about a rice soup. This is my favorite drink when I lunched at school in Changsha because all dishes in Changsha tasted so hot. Now, you're going to have to read the soup section to understand how soup is different in China to understand Rulan's footnote. All of the footnotes (laughs) in here are just so fun. I'd love to share one of mine. Yeah. Because it reminded me of my own family a lot. So one of my favorite notes is actually two footnotes in the note to the second revised edition. And the first footnote from Mr. Chow reads, Shortly after the publication of my wife's book, my teacher of philosophy, whose attention had been called to the problem in mathematical logic in recipe number 13.1, called me up and said, quote, Chow, isn't it awful? One of the cross-references in your wife's cookbook doesn't refer, end quote. (laughs) The second footnote to it is, it does now. And that's from Mrs. Chow. And I, you know, it's that kind of back and forth, those little moments. I grew up, my father is an academic, so I can imagine what kind of academic atmosphere was in the home. He's a Mm. linguist and often he would have fellow instructors over for dinner. They'd be working on coursework and and their lesson plans and she would cook dinner for them. That's how Mm -hmm. I believe this is how the book came up was a sort of idea of they had people in the home and they're you should make a cookbook. Same thing that happened with Edna Lewis, right? You should put a cookbook together. Part of me just loves the absurdity of the fact that it's awful. Your cross reference doesn't actually cross reference (laughs) because it's that weird academic attention to detail. That's it's the end of the world. And then just a very simple three word answer. It does now. It does now. It does now. We got it. We took care of it. I just. (laughs) So yeah. what what edition do you have? Because my edition doesn't have that in it, I don't suspect. Yeah, my so mine is newer because I had not heard of this cookbook. I have the third yeah. edition revised and enlarged. So there are a couple of additional notes from her about traveling in China after the publication of this book, adding recipes in from different regions, 
she said, suddenly I now I have a little bit of identity outside of my medical and my academic realms. People were coming to her with ideas and suggestions and new recipes. And so this is actually a living cookbook. And I right my yeah, my copy is new. I do have the benefit of some extra notes and obviously some corrections and cross references. <laughs> I did use this, though, because before we, we got ready for this particular episode, my sister-in-law, who lives in England, had a sick child at home, and she really wanted to make her that velvety egg drop soup that you often find in Chinese restaurants in the United States. I have yet to eat in China, so I'm not sure what you can find there quite yet. But I turned to this to give her some recommendations. I went to the soup section and said, why don't you try starting here? Because this looks closest to what I think you're actually wanting to cook up. And she actually got there with this. So, yeah, for my in-law family and my own, Chinese food is a newer experience. It's not something either of our families, I think, grew up cooking. Mm -hmm. Certainly grew up eating it, but not so much cooking it. And so we're all having this sort of slow discovery and experience of figuring out what it is to cook accurately in Chinese food. Right. Not authentically. Accurately. Not authentically, accurately. And she makes some really good points about that as well, Mm. about the fact that, you know, hey, if you can get some of the more esoteric ingredients, and certainly when this book was written, those ingredients would have been incredibly esoteric. She references getting tangerine pollen from overseas because tangerines in the States weren't sweet. I mean, these are the little things that you completely take for granted now. now. This one was a revelation. And again, her tone... Oh, this is fun. You feel like you're cooking with someone sassy. You do. And that's, totally. That's the fun thing, too. Edna is very sweet and sincere. Julia Child, of course, she's funny. And, you know, there's a certain amount of do it anyway kind of attitude to Julia Child. But there's something here that I really felt was like fun. You know, you're yes. hanging with a friend that's she's got a little bit. She wants to help you. She's, a, she's got a little sarcasm to her too exactly there's a little sass there's a little sachet a little swagger (laughs) totally yes you know i think that to end this one of my favorite things in this cookbook is a spice called taste powder Mm -hmm. and i'm going to read the description here she says there is a whole class of whitish savory powder made mostly from gluten of flour we shall call it taste powder in the recipes The oldest form of this is made from dried fermented muscle of flour, which is gluten, often made in old Chinese households. Almost 30 years ago, the Japanese manufactured from hydrolyzed gluten a powder called anjinomoto, which means prime element of taste. Later, a Chinese firm manufactured veitsin, which is essence of taste. And it's still found as of the publishing of this book. (laughs) It was still found on some shelves in Chinatown. Accent, which I actually have in my pantry, are now made in this country. All these are essentially monosodium glutamate. All right. But I love that it's called (laughs) taste powder. powder. And I think that it really further explains the philosophy and the experience of cooking and eating in Mm. the Chinese fashion. The spice itself, the word means prime element of taste. Mm -hmm. There's this huge emphasis on the taste of the foods and how you experience them. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what's so beautiful about this cookbook is that it is really about 
and experience. Yeah. The thing that also struck me while we were preparing for this was how remarkable it was that the world was in this open mind frame at this time, that it was open to the idea of embracing cuisines from different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, this is probably possibly the effect of having a world war. And you, you were so eloquently talking about the history of China, and it's very deep and very complicated. But they were our allies. We had this stay away, but come here, but stay away. Mm-hmm. But we want your mm-hmm. food, but we don't want your people. It was this odd juxtaposition of these things. Yes, yes. Um, you know, you talked about open-mindedness, and she talked specifically about you have to be open-minded and open-mouthed. And she goes in to describe why open-minded and why it's important to be open-mouthed, to be able to taste those flavors. So it's one thing to have an open mind. It's an entirely different thing to have both an open mind and an open mouth so that you do experience those things. Yeah, there's a reason why diplomatic dinners are a thing. You know, when we break bread, and there's so many traditions, and we've talked about a lot of them. I'm Mm. thinking about the Ottoman Empire episode where we talked about if you eat in somebody's home, you cannot be hurt. You are a guest. You walk in the door and you pop a crouton. You have to be treated a certain way because you've eaten with each other. Yeah. But this is what home is like for us or welcome to our country. Let's eat together. Yeah. When you eat, you relate. But why we do what we do. It's why we do what we do. Yeah. No, I'm thrilled to be able to explore this book. I'm thrilled that I have the opportunity to cook from it yeah. and to eat from it as well. So I know you're going to ask me. I am going to ask you. What are you going to ask me? Like, have you picked? I have. Have you? But and okay. I'm going to I'm going to set a little groundwork here because okay. Okay. one of the things that I learned, and of course now thinking about the dishes that I've had in restaurants and the types of foods I have seen be available in Chinese restaurants. She talks about red cooking and she talks about white cooking, mm. and there are these two kind of separate but equal influences in Chinese food. I am committing to making a red dish and a white dish Ooh. just to just experience the dichotomy between the two of them. Let's see what there is. I also am committing to try cooking with tofu with this. Ooh. It's something I don't do a lot of. Mm. And my introduction to tofu a very long time ago as a little kid was less than ideal. Yeah. I'm actually not that familiar with how, on how to cook well with tofu. So that might be part of it part of the red white or it might be its own thing we'll find out we'll find out stay tuned i'm very excited i'm very excited for you to explain to our as we eat family the difference yep. between red and white yep, and why i'm leaving that. it there for now you have to Perfect. come back you have to come back to find out what the heck is yes. i'm talking about red, red food red food and it's not the soul food it's not like soul food or nope. is it or is it or <laughs> you'll have to find that's out. a good question or is it come back to find out We've mentioned a couple of other episodes that we think that you might enjoy. Episode 59 and 60, which we talk about mastering the art of French cooking. Episode 41, Brothers and Spoons, where we talk about the Ottoman Empire and how eating at a table might bring you life and luck. (laughs) And episode 33, How to Be a Good Host, which we talk about learning table manners and how they came to be. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat, and please join our Facebook family recipes, traditions, and food lore community for great conversations about these topics and so much more. 
And so you don't miss an episode, make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you could spare a couple of minutes away from the stir fry, but don't step away from it, make it first and then step away. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise it will burn. Please rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or Spotify. It makes us so happy when you do that. And it really helps us to add more fabulous people like you to our As We Eat community. We also publish the As We Eat journal on Substack. We would be honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, and so much more. There are several subscription tiers. We're sure you're going to find one that's just right for you at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity-driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a bit of research with a dash of humor and a whole lot of passion. Ba -da -da -ba -ba -ba.